This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. This week's Shoeshine takes a look at how artificial intelligence and machine learning is being applied in financial services and investing. Will Mace joins me now to talk about what he's learnt. Now, this field changes really quickly, doesn't it, Will? It does indeed, yeah. As I sort of mentioned in, in the piece, uh, it's been a, a few months, three months actually, since I last wrote about this for Shoeshine. And, and um, you know, it's a slightly different angle, but just the amount of news that is coming out, the amount of... Um, you know, I suppose regulatory concern, academics, um, just and also just new ways of using artificial intelligence, and in particular, these new large language model interfaces that are really sort of entering the popular culture at the moment. And um, it's just it's just really difficult to keep up with, but also super interesting uh, area to 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 look at. Mm-hmm. So, what do you think? Should AI and machine learning be used more in financial markets? Um, I mean, it has been used for a long time, obviously, sort of uh, there's a continuum, I guess, you know, we're talking about machine learning and and, and um, very hardcore sort of quantitative analysis has obviously been around for, for decades um, and continues to evolve. And I suppose it's an evolution of that um, and being able to use, um, I suppose, it's even democratizing that even further so that, um, uh, you know, investors who may be keen to get into the market. You know, there's a lot of those uh, around um, investing through the likes of Sharesies and other sort of advisors online and other trading platforms. They can actually upskill um, through research uh, interfaces like ChatGPT. So it's not, there's there's kind of the, the quant side of things, but then there's also, okay, this is, there's, there's greater uses for people who perhaps aren't the most expert, but they can really increase their expertise um, very quickly. Uh, and, you know, even just ask these models how they should be investing. So I, I suppose that it's, it's a continuation of that democratization on that level, but it's also, there's danger with that. Um, as, as we know, if, you know, if the investors aren't necessarily taking in, taking on board the lessons that that they need to be, or perhaps the the interfaces, the large language models that they're dealing with aren't um, giving them the, the right information, because we all know that the likes of ChatGPT can, you know, bullshit a little bit, pardon my French, but that's part of the, the danger of it. So I guess that was something that I wanted to look at and ask some sort of experts in the field whether uh, it's a good idea. And these experts, what do they say? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I spoke to um, this really interesting study came out just recently from uh, a couple of academics at Auckland, University of Auckland, Helen Liu and Paul Gertzema, um, about uh, machine learning um, being very capable at predicting company valuations. Um, you know, they trained a, uh, a particular type of AI model, machine learning model, on 30 years worth of financial data, um, and it was able to... Uh, you know, outperform other traditional methods of company valuation. So that's an interesting um, application of of machine learning, but it's it's very sort of theoretical, and I don't think anyone will be chucking that into a, a hedge fund model uh, immediately. Although one fund manager I spoke to about this thought it might be a good idea. Um, so there's sort of the the academic uh, sort of pushing the the boundaries in, in theory, and then there's 
uh, the fund managers that I that I just mentioned, um, who are you know still using they they use quantitative analysis. They're looking at using um, artificial intelligence to improve their own productivity within their own businesses and in perhaps asset allocation. Um, I think asset allocation is definitely a, an area where this can, this can help in terms of um, uh, grouping assets together or valuing them, such as the academics were, were suggesting, um, better creating indexes that are quicker and um, have less kind of human involvement in, in creating them, which sometimes cuts out the, the bias um, that a human might have in terms of assembling different assets in different, um, in different pots. Um, who else did I speak to? Um, uh, there's a really interesting uh, startup that's just starting a uh, a company called Gembot or an application called Gembot. It's a, it's a platform they're actually launching this week. Uh, well, they're, they're still sort of in early testing, but they're launching a, a beta of sorts. Um, and they have combined ChatGPT, an open AI GPT platform, um, with a financial sort of brokerage model or a, an information model. So you can go online to this um, tool and part of its use is to, you can ask it questions just as you might ask ChatGPT questions uh, and it fires back financial information, um, not advice, but information. And um, it once you give it some of your details as well about your um your investment profile, your your investments, your portfolios, um, your bank accounts. Um, obviously, um, it creates tailored advice for you. Sorry, not advice, but information that that really suits the way that you might want to invest, the strategies that you're pursuing. Um, so it's really taking a lot of the best parts of that ChatGPT and and um, and creating a, a financial model around it. Because the if you ask ChatGPT for financial information at the moment, it's got such a broad um, non-financial as well as financial um, information base that it's not really going to cater very well to that. But it sounds like from what these um, Gembot guys are telling me is that their product will be that um, Mm. specific. Uh, Could this sort of thing put financial analysts or advisors out of jobs? Not according to the financial advisors that I talk to, but they would say that, wouldn't they? Um, there is, and I believe this too, is that there is always a human element to these things. It's a human, you know, markets are human by design and they have human imperfections in them. Where you can, um, where these kind of tools do work is they create efficiency and they may be able to increase the the probability or, or the predictability um, and give you an advantage, um, but it's never going to beat the market, as it were. It's never going to create a, a perfect market where you can predict exactly what's going to happen. That's just not not conceivable, uh, at least at the moment. So there will, I believe, um, always be that role for that human touch, um, that human overlay, uh, you know, the large, large language models and the machine learning models, they don't theorize. They calculate the next step based on probability of information that they already have. Mm-hmm. So often they may, you know, they may make mistakes and um, human eyes over that who know the theory that humans have come up with um, is sort of needed to balance out the, I suppose, the the rough edges of, of an AI. But 
obviously things are moving fast, so it could change. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been some high-profile calls to put a pause on these machine mm. learning tools until we better understand how they can develop. Um, are you of the opinion there should be a pause? Um, I think I am, yeah. yeah. And I, I did write about this a, a few weeks ago after a panel that I hosted at the University of Auckland, and I had and there were um, two academics and two people from from business on the panel, and we talked about the pause. Yes, it it, it might be ideal, but is it going to you know how is it going to do that in practice? Um, since then, we've had more and more academics and and business people coming out and saying it, it's probably a good idea, um, including last week Sam Altman from OpenAI um, talking about regulation. I spoke to uh, Johnny Penn, Dr. Johnny Penn, who's a Cambridge University academic in um, AI ethics. He was in New Zealand um, two weeks ago for the Spark Future State Conference and had a great chat with him about his idea for a pause, which he calls a, a rest, an, an engineered rest. Um, it, to me, it, just sounds, it sounds like a pause, but mm-hmm. the way that he rationalized it, it, it might be more palatable to people or, you know, it's not just a pause that because we're all completely frightened, it's more of a, okay, um, maybe we should pause these applications um, because we're not really sure about those. But these ones, you know, are, you know, like identifying tumors within the body, you know, through scans or um, using Shazam when you're, you know, in the nightclub and want to hear the, like, find out what song's on the radio. Um, those kind of things, have at it, go for it. But there's others that could be a bit dicey and we need a bit more regulation and information about how they're going to work. Uh, Thanks, Will, for your time. No problem. Today in our Toil and Trouble employment law slot, I'm speaking to employment law specialist Jennifer Mills about two recent cases of unjustified dismissal, one which points to a possible line of thought about employees shifting off their work responsibilities to other workers or even AI. Jennifer, can you outline this first case for us, please? It's a very interesting scenario, Dita, and I think that we're going to see more of this. And the legal question is whether an employee can contract out their duties and responsibilities either by using AI tools or even remote workers globally. Um, And there are a a whole suite of freelance workers which are accessible globally. Uh, So the question is whether an employee can do that. And it involves the case uh, Dr. Stachurski and University of Canterbury. Um, And she was a senior lecturer in the English department, took on a project to produce a play. It got a little bit overwhelming in terms of time commitments. Um, She asked for an extension of sabbatical leave from the university, which was declined. Um, I suspect what was happening with the fast approaching production of the play deadline, uh, she was looking at how she was going to juggle her play commitments with her lecturing duties. Um, There was another um, employee of the university uh, by the name of Ms Nash, and she was a fixed-term tutor. She'd done some tutoring filling in for um, Dr Stachewski previously, um, and uh, she was asked whether she could fill in and perform some of those lecturing duties just over that crunch um, temporal period during the play production and leading up to it. 
Now, um, no one at management level within the university was notified and obviously no consent was sought for the arrangement. Um, and Dr. Stachewski paid Ms. Nash in cash for the lecturing duties that she performed um, as a fill-in. Um, the university found out about it and um, raised um, disciplinary proceedings against Dr. Tchersky, who accepted that um, she was required to personally perform um, her role for the university, but gave a number of mitigating factors such as the uh, huge um, burden of the production of the play. Um, she also raised mental health issues and other stresses. Um, the university formed a preliminary view that she should be dismissed for that admitted conduct, um, which it considered to be very serious misconduct. Um, Dr. Stachewski was given an opportunity to respond to that preliminary view um, along the lines that um, I've already identified. And ultimately, the university did conclude um, that her conduct was serious misconduct, although she was given um, her notice when the university could have dismissed her summarily. Um, and the reasons were that she personally paid Ms. Nash to perform lecturing duties for her, um, that she was absent from her duties for um, two months, um, that she breached the delegations of authority of the university, um, and she placed the university at risk um, because that arrangement was outside the university's insurance policy. Now, Dr. Stachewski said it was unreasonable for the university to dismiss her. Um, she said that a head of department was aware that Ms. Nash was performing those um, lecturing um, duties uh, and there was no intervention by the university and prompt action wasn't taken. Um, she uh, claimed that um, other staff were permitted to deliver lectures from time to time. Um, and that it really was a matter uh, of degree and that the university's policy wasn't clear. In response, the university said that the conduct in question was basically that the employee was subcontracting a key aspect of her senior lecturing role without permission, and that breached the fundamental obligation of personal performance of work by an employee. The university said that um, it didn't um, possess the knowledge of her arrangements, even though the head of department was aware um, that wasn't a management role, so the university um, wasn't as an organisation, um, aware of the arrangement. And the authority found that Dr. Suchersky was required to personally perform all of the components of her role. Um, and it was a fundamental breach of her employment obligations. And the university had a sound basis for finding that she had committed serious misconduct. Um, obviously, there was legal risk. And the authority noted that the other mental health issues, uh, which were raised in mitigation, um, weren't properly argued and there wasn't sufficient corroborative evidence that was led in the authority. So the, ca the case came down to whether or not the university was deemed to have prior knowledge of that arrangement and the head of department wasn't obviously found to be uh, sufficiently senior um, to sheet home that knowledge to the university. So um, the conclusion for the authority was that a fair and reasonable employer could have concluded that her actions were um, serious misconduct um, and it deeply destroyed the trust and confidence in the employment relationship. 
And it was very much a principled decision. I mean, there could have been mitigating features which were taken into account, but they were not. And I really think um, this is the start of a scenario where we could see employees perhaps using um, chat GPT to write um, any other sort of um, opinion, any piece of advice. Uh, you can see how employees might want to use the AI tools to do that. And there are readily accessible um, uh, workers, freelance remote workers globally, um, who can also um, prepare the sort of material um, on a contracting basis, which employees um, might find attractive when they're overwhelmed with work. But this is a very clear signal to employees um, that that's not permissible in uh, modern employment relationships, that employees must personally perform um, their duties. Yes, just going, just putting AI aside for a moment, um, I was quite surprised this this um, constitutes serious misconduct. I mean, sh surely she could argue, well, I was finding someone to fill in and I was paying them. I mean, I know it seems a bit off, but is it in the scope of things that you can do as misconduct, is that really one of the most serious things you can do? Well, it is very serious because the starting point is that you must personally perform your services. So it's not an independent contractor relationship which permits subcontracting. Um, it put the university at risk. So the um, services provided were outside the insurance policy. Um, it was outside uh, the employee's delegated authority. Um, and for all intents and purposes, she uh, represented herself as performing her services. And she would have been better off to have said to the university, I'm in serious trouble. Um, I'm under huge mental stress. I'm going to have to go off on stress leave if you don't give me um, uh, additional sabbatical leave or some other kind of unpaid leave to get this done. So I think that early um, discussion with one's employer in a scenario like this would be uh, a better outcome, Yes, would absolutely. lead to a better outcome. Yeah, absolutely. And just in terms of AI, I mean, the difference is obviously that you wouldn't you might pay for AI services, but you wouldn't pay someone out of your wage um, to to use the services. Um, I mean, as you think this is going to become more common in the courts of law that uh, AI will, will come into the picture? I think we'll see the use of AI more and more. Um, and there will need to be some uh, acceptance, I think, by employers that some use of AI is part of an employee's role. Um, and I'm sure that we'll see um, grey areas in the future where some um, use of AI tools is permissible, but um, extensive use is not. So there will need to be uh, clear policies and guidelines set by employers in the future as to what is acceptable. But of course, um, anyone uh, who is permitted to use an AI tool must very carefully check the material that's produced. Often um, there are nuance, nuances which are missed um, or there are points which are subtly wrong. Um, so it's not necessarily a great substitute for personal service of, of, of duties. And certainly in law, it as in journalism, th these are two areas where AI, you know, is picked to to take over some tasks. What do you make of that? Well, certainly the AI transcription service is very good, um, but it, it, you, you must go through it. An author must go through any sort of transcription to make sure that it's accurate. Documents can be produced, but 
litigation, I think, is an area which can't possibly um, be, uh, humans can't be replicated by, by AI and the same with journalists. I mean, you've got a, a subjective flavour um, to your work, um, which an AI bot couldn't reproduce. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. Senior National MP Judith Collins has been talking about unintended consequences when it comes to making laws and regulations and how that might impact on economic outcomes. And she joins me now. So what are the sort of unintended consequences you think comes from bad lawmaking? Well, when I say, when you say bad lawmaking, often they have very good intentions. And um, if I take some of the rules that the government has put in place around, for instance, residential rentals uh, for housing, really good intentions, but forgetting I think, as I think they did, that a lot of landlords would feel um, either bullied or unable to comply with them, or worse, feel that they could not deal with unruly tenants. And so you've actually ended up now with a housing waiting list that's five times what it was when we left office. We've got uh, exiting people exiting the market, and rentals keep going up in value. Uh, so basically, I think it's like if, if you don't look at, no matter what these policies are, if you don't look at the economics of it, what the likely response is going to be, then we'll end up with worse outcomes than what there were to start with. But but how do we how do you get the balance right where you know landlords can continue to operate profitably, but but tenants also get a kind of reasonable deal? I mean, obviously the complaints have been that tenants have perhaps been ripped off by some landlords at least. Well, one of the best ways of dealing with that is to allow the market to encourage people to be landlords. In other words, not to put so many rules and regulations on them or make it so disproportionately uneconomic to be a landlord um, around some of the things like the um, tax deductibility of interest for landlords, residential landlords. To me, that's all that does is make it less likely that people want to be landlords. If you have more people willing to be landlords and more supply, then that will actually bring down the, the cost, eventually that will bring down the cost of, of rentals. So the best thing to do if you've, if you've got um, a market is to make sure that you don't skew it so far one way that you end up having to pay for it the other. And I think that's one of the sad things is that, particularly when Phil Twyford was the Minister of Housing, they just brought in all these attacks on landlords, and it was seen as that. So a lot of people just exited. I think you make the same point about labour laws as well, and and you mm. obviously think that the pendulum is swinging back too much against employers. I think it's important to remember that we do not want returns to the days when people didn't have rights as employees and it is really important to encourage more people to work. So you've got to have good labour laws that keep up with the times and social norms. At the same time, employers or businesses have options and those options are going to be, and I'm seeing this right now happen, uh, 
employers are going to be looking at businesses where they have more automation, fewer jobs, but the jobs that they do have are generally better paid because and with better conditions because they don't have to have as many people. So there's always a cost to everything. You know, it's like with health and safety, incredibly important. Uh, the point is always that people need to, as employers, need not to be worried about taking on a new person. They just need to make sure that they are taking on someone that they do have mechanisms if that person is causing disruption or is perhaps causing an unsafe environment for other staff, that they are able to take some action. And that's really important. I mean, with your hat on as um, Nationals Research and Development and Artificial Intelligence spokesperson, I think you've said that you really worry about imposing regulations on artificial intelligence. Do you think it should just be left to, to innovate without any controls? Well, I think people need to realise is that there are already some controls uh, around data and data use, and those are particularly in the Privacy Act, and it was updated in 2020 to take account of the new digital world. Uh, it's very similar le legislation to what there is in Europe, um, and it is something which I think deals with the real heart of it, which is that your data should be your data, and if other people use it, that there should be rules around that. So... And I think that's that's crucial. But just saying that you're going to regulate artificial intelligence is, as I've you know mentioned before, is like trying to say you're going to regulate physics. You can't regulate against that in a liberal democracy. What you can do is look at how it's used and is that use one which is damaging to the people uh, or is it going to, to help better outcomes? And I've seen it being used in, in the medical area and... And, of course, it's used in banking a lot. It is, it is something which can create enormous benefits for people. And we have to make sure that around that data, that we don't, as a government, for instance, when we come into government, that we are very clear about how people's data can be used. And so do you think it offers a lot of opportunity for New Zealand to actually increase productivity? Well, I think it's enormous opportunity to do exactly that and increase productivity. But at the same time, we have to understand, like, all technology ends up disrupting um, workplaces and our ways of doing things. But just as we no longer expect people to take their goods to market in a horse and cart, uh, we have to understand that new technologies need to be able to work for people. And in a, as I say, in a liberal democracy with an independent media, that's important. Um, a strong opposition is also important. These are all the checks and balances. But what is absolutely crucial in all of this is the role of a non-corrupt uh, court system, justice system. That is absolutely crucial. So, yes, we know that artificial intelligence can be misused, it can be misused by big corporations. It can be misused by governments. And I think that's actually probably the most serious opportunity for misuse. And therefore, governments need to put in place our own rules about how we use other people's data, because that's essentially what that is. So you also talk about the importance of the rule of law in terms of attracting um, foreign investment. So... I, do you have any concerns about the issue in New Zealand at the moment in terms of attracting foreign investment and, and what changes might National make if you do have those worries? 
Well, I think, for instance, that governments need to be very clear about their settings and not just chop and change the rules whenever they feel like it. So we saw that uh, a few years back when Labor changed the rules around or said that announced that they were stopping offshore oil and gas exploration. That sent shockwaves around the international business community because not only those in the oil and gas um, area, sector, but also in other sectors because they saw a government off the top without any warning whatsoever or any indications of what they were doing, just make a decision that actually was going to completely change their view of New Zealand So as a place to do business. So I think certainty is extremely important and very clear signals to markets and to the people about what is about to happen, what our course is. That's crucial. I also believe very firmly that you can't do things like nationalise anything without understanding that all that does is open up the reason why nobody would want to come invest somewhere. So that's important. We've seen that with um, the attempts around the three waters, now five waters uh, legislation, not strictly nationalising but pretty close to it. I think that has sent some shockwaves around as well. It is really important that we consistently understand that not only investment um, but talented people with markets and market contacts uh, they have a wealth of places that they can be New Zealand has lots and lots of opportunities and we are a beautiful country we are a long way away from a lot of trouble and that is a good thing but we are not the only game in town and we have to understand that. We are competing for talent and that's what we see everywhere around the country. But we're competing for, for talent from places like Australia, um, Canada, UK, all these sorts of places. And we need to understand that people do have choices and we need to respect that they have that choice. Judith Collins, thank you for your time. Thank you. Buy New Zealand Made has purchased trademark detection tool Logo Hunter to discuss why and how it will help New Zealand businesses. Buy NZ's executive director and a familiar face to MBR, Dane Ambler, joins us now. Thanks, Hadden. So, why have you made this acquisition? Look, I think the, the benefits of this acquisition are threefold. First of all, uh, it will greatly reduce um, our costs and the time of, of uh, going after breaches. That's been quite a significant pain point for us for, for many years now. Uh, the second aspect of, a, of it is um, the, the value add proposition. So um, once the tool is, is ready and behind our website, we'll be able to offer it to our license holders to use. Um, often a small business might not have the means or the resource to detect where their brands are being use, used. So um, yeah, offering them the opportunity to jump into the system, run their own brands, brand through it and see exactly where it's being used in a, in a detailed compliance report. Um, and then the third probably benefit is um, the fact that we can look at a subscription model for this. So um, other certification bodies or other countries that have, you know, country of origin logos are all looking to detect how their brands are being used. So I think there's a there's a great opportunity there as well. Why now? Why have you decided to make this acquisition now? Was there a trigger point? Yeah, I've been talking to um, countries around the world 
um, around la- launching their own country of origin trademark. Um, and a lot of these countries are in the very early stages of this. Um, and, you know, I discussed this tool and um, I said that we've been using it to, to monitor how our own brand's being used. Uh, and there's significant interest in it. So there is, you know, we should always be looking at ways to I guess, diversify our our income streams. And um, for me, uh, I guess the lights went off and I thought this was a great opportunity. So you're looking to take this as a sort of subscription model overseas? Yeah, totally, totally. I think, you know, it's getting harder for for brands to to monitor how their assets are being used these days. Uh, Everything's online. We're in a, you know, a very globalised digital online world. So, you know, monitoring and tracking breaches of your logo is getting harder. So, um, yeah, I do think there's real value in it. How serious are the current breaches that you come across? Look, a lot of them are unintentional. We would see perhaps up to 100 breaches a year. Um, usually uh, we would um, go out to the business and, and say, look, you're, you're infringing. Um, and generally they'll take it off. You know, sometimes you get some pushbacks. Uh, a lot of businesses don't understand how New Zealand Made is run and they expect it to be a free service. Uh, but the reality is, you know, we need to fund this business so that we can continue to deliver the gold standard in, in country of origin trademarks. Mm. Is this done anywhere else? Uh, there, there's... There's similar things on the market, um, but not uh, n- as far as I'm aware. There's nothing close to what Arcanum has um, delivered here. Uh, it's a very detailed uh, uh, AI tool um, that can give like a really detailed um, compliance report. So uh, I'll give you an example. It can detect um, the Kiwi logo that that we use. That's you know known by 90% of Kiwis. Uh, even without the words and the trademark. So it can differentiate a New Zealand-made Kiwi from uh, just a standard Kiwi. So that's the logo on the back of a product, and Mm -hmm. that is being used uh, unintentionally on products. Uh, In a lot of cases it is, yeah. A lot of people know the New Zealand-made brand, um, and they assume it's something free. Um, but the reality is, you know, we, we, we do have to really crack down on breaches, otherwise any business would, you know, be using it no matter where they make their products. And it's all about holding ourselves to a really high standard of what New Zealand manufacturing is. So how will Logo Hunter look under Buy NZ Made? Will you scale up the business? Will you need to employ people? How will it look? Yeah, so we'll still have to use um, contractors to, to monitor the results that the tool generates. Um, it will reduce a significant amount of time. Um, we will implement it behind uh, the Buy New Zealand Made dashboard, so 1,400 businesses um, get to use it, um, and it will be yeah, set up under a new tab on, on our website. To date, how has it been used? Uh, so it's only been used for our brand so far, so to, to track and monitor our own breaches, um, and we were impressed with how, how well it ran. Yeah. Mm. And. What do the the founders of the app plan to do now? Uh, well, Akanum's uh, a pretty um, you know complex AI developer. They have a lot of products on offer, um, and to be honest, they I think they were keen for us to take this off their hands because they saw how much value we could add to it. Uh, you know, it's really a seamless transition that that has come under the New Zealand made brand. And how will New Zealanders react to this? Look, businesses? I think yeah. 
as I said earlier, you know, a lot of small businesses don't have the means or the resource to go after breaches. So I think, you know, they can probably breathe a bit of a sigh of relief. Obviously, it's not going to be available to all businesses. Right now, we're just going to offer it to, to businesses under the New Zealand made brand. Um, but I think, you know, our license holders will be really pleased that we're looking to, to add value. You know, this, this, this brand's been around for, for 30 years and it's known and loved by Kiwis, but that doesn't mean that, you know, what we've done for 30 years is going to work for the next 30. So um, a big part of what I've been doing is looking to for new ways to add value. Um, and also there's the... Um, you know, the, new, the, the, the opportunity for new income streams as well. Yeah, what is that potential? Do you have any guidance or figures in mind? Uh, look, we haven't looked at pricing it up, um, but, you know, we're, we're talking about um, countries, we're talking about states. So the two I've been, you know, talking to quite closely are the state of Hawaii uh, and the Norwegian government, and they're both in the very early stages of launching their own products. Um, so, you know, it won't be cheap, you know, we can, we can look at making this a premium product. Um, yeah. Diane Ambler, thanks for your time. Thank you. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Former business consultant and theatre nurse Chris Barber and Beck Kay took a massive swerve to a new career in their 40s, buying a limoncello business and expanding into a range of spirits, primarily gin, under their The Bond Store brand. NBR's Dita Deboni asked the pair how they planned to fund their future expansion. When we started off this business in 2018, you know, we we were doing less than $200,000 a year. Um, you know, we've just got to the end of this financial year and the last couple of years have been really tough. But, you know, we've 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 had revenues of just under $850,000 this year. Um, you know, we're aiming to get to a million dollars and and um, didn't quite get there, but certainly certainly on the way through. Um, we've got we've got really big support from our customers. We've got a couple of big opportunities and stuff in there. So so it's probably about now where we're starting to have that conversation where we've we've invested a huge amount in you know the the stills and that sort of stuff to do what we what we need to do. Um, I think the challenge for us is going to be if we want to go from being a, a one million dollar company to the five million dollar company, which is what our goal is. That's when we're probably going to have to start um, to start looking a bit wider. So. Um, yeah, we've we've sort of been lucky. I mean, you know, here in Kapiti as well, we've you know we've got um, good access to, to people and, and that sort of stuff. So um, yeah, we've yeah we've be, we've been lucky up till now. We haven't had to go out too much wider, um, but it's probably the next stage where we start to start to think about it. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, um, how does it look like on the retail side? Have you got big contracts with either supermarket? Oh, sorry, you wouldn't be in supermarkets, but large retail stores or where is it sold? The product. Well, I guess a, I guess a little bit of the kind of the the, the um, if we just go back a wee step. So we started off um, in the limoncello space, so in the liqueur space. So Cocor is our is our liqueur brand, and so when we started to do the gin side of things, um, we decided then that we we needed to have a slightly different brand, a bit more a bit more fun. So our so our limoncello is the um, it's sort of in the super premium category. It's at the top of the shelf, um, carries that sort of high price range and that sort of stuff. We wanted our gin and, and our vodka as well, which we we launched to be um, a little bit more accessible, a bit more fun and that sort of stuff. So we created the Bond Store brand around that, right. um, and then. 
um, and then 12 months ago, um, we sort of looked at the category then and we saw that the the more pre-made cocktail, the ready-to-drink stuff was starting to grow. So a year ago, we started the um, another brand called Cocktail Collusion, which is our our ready to drink brand as well. So we don't have um we don't have contracts with our um with our retailers. Um but you know at the moment we are because we've got a product um that people really really like and sells really well um and we've got those good relationships we're now in about 175 bottle shops up and down the country. Mm-hmm. Um we buy duty free um and we've got a couple of export opportunities that we're trying to work through at the moment too. So so we don't necessarily have the contracts in place, but I think we have the relationships and we've we've um I guess we've built that place in the market where you know the customer demand is there. So um so yeah, that's that's sort of the big thing. So about a third of our businesses um bars and restaurants and that sort of stuff, about a third of our businesses through bottle bottle shops. Um, and about a third of our business is sort of direct stuff, whether it's online or through a food show or, or that sort of thing. Um, I mean, the it, the industry for bottle shops, is it quite consolidated? Like I know there are some big chains or are you dealing with one-on-one with little tiny stores? No, uh, one-on-one with little tiny stores. So um, so there's the big brands out there, but underneath the brands, they're all they're all pretty much owner uh, owner operators, and so um, having said that, there's a there's a few owner operators out there that have multiple sites, but um, but generally, um, you know, we we're dealing with the with the owner of a store, and um, and you know that so that that can be quite a challenge, but also um, I think we wouldn't be here today if if the if the industry wasn't like that because. You know, like our, um, you know, our local liquor land here, for instance, in Kapiti, um, they they were the first one to give us a try. You know, they they knew us and said, "Hey, let's put it on the shelf and see how it goes." And so that ability to deal one on one with the with the owners, um, it, it's a it's a complicated sales transaction, but also it gives lots of opportunities. So um, so yeah, no, it's more of a, more of a one on one negotiation. These exports, these export opportunities, sound very exciting. Um, can you? <laughs> I know you probably can't say too much about it, but where and like, what are you trying to do with that export arm? Yeah, I mean, um, one of the issues that we have, um, you know, in, in in New Zealand, and one of the things we've learned anyway is that our excise tax is really, really high. And so, um, you know, at the moment we're sitting at about sixty dollars per liter of alcohol, um, which is just excise tax. And then, um, and that's CPI adjusted. So now that we're in this inflationary environment, you know, there's there's potential for excise tax to go up again another seven percent in in July, and that's kind of huge for us. So, um, so we've looked at a, a couple of things, but um, you know, we on, on the other side of it, you know, we're quite small, so we, you know, and we're really really busy. So we, you know, we've got to be a little bit careful in there. But we're really lucky to have been approached by um, by approached by a local business that's um, that's looking to. Um, expand their footprint in the um, in the United States, and so we're we're working on that one at the moment. Um, wow. It's a little bit of a challenge because the um, because Americans, you know, we, we've had this we've had the big gin craze in New Zealand and in other countries and that sort of stuff. It, it hasn't it doesn't seem to have really hit America yet. You know, America's still a whiskey and a vodka a vodka place, and so um, so we we need to learn on the way through there. So we're we're doing everything we can to be prepared for for that one, um, but we haven't we haven't quite nailed it yet. So um yeah we're we're working really hard behind the scenes to make sure we've got a really good product that we can that we can take over there
Followers of Whole Proof, Dorchester Pacific and Turner's Automotive will be familiar with the name Paul Burns. He joins me now to talk about his career and his views towards entrepreneurship. Hi, Paul. Hi, Will. Thanks for joining us. So I just, as I always do, wanted to start at the beginning. Um, tell me a little bit about where you were born, where you grew up and, and sort of um, your early years. Take us back to maybe your, your first job or your first pocket money. Can you think about what, what sort of got uh, you interested in those days? Yeah, first job I had uh, was a small engineering company. It uh, was uh, making wire rope uh, and it was in the accounts department and that was really to get my uh, to get my practical sort of time for the professional qualifications. Mm-hmm. So uh, stayed there for the time I needed to. Uh, then I joined a small plastics uh, company and did sort of cost and management side of it. And uh, about a year after I joined, that was taken over by uh, a listed company called Feltex, the old Feltex, which was quite a diversified company, mm. uh, had carpet, rubber, sort of foam. And they moved their head office from Wellington to Auckland. And I moved into a head office and did some work on a, on a number of the divisions, which gave me really great experience. Mm. You came to Holeproof, which was NZDEC listed at that time, um, managing director at age 32, which seems pretty young to me. And I imagine it was, even at that time, was pretty young for an executive at that, at that point. How, how did you come into that role? Uh, so I was, I was headhunted. Uh, someone at uh, Sheffield uh, approached me. They had followed my career at uh, Feltex. And at Feltex, uh, after sort of three years, Around the various divisions, I uh, was put in charge of a small, almost a sort of a startup in uh, in yarns, textile yarns, hand knitting yarns, in fact, uh, and built that up sort of quite well. When I took it over, it was a million dollars sort of turnover and losing two hundred thousand, and uh, in sort of eighteen months or so, we got it up, or two years, got it up to fifteen million, and did quite a few exports and you know won some awards, etc. Uh, but uh, I needed to make the choice about whether I stayed in that corporate environment uh, or whether I sort of uh, branched out and looked at other opportunities. And the the Holeproof one was such an opportunity that um, the owner, Pacific Dunlop from Australia, had had a bit of a roller coaster in, in performance of the business and were looking to put um, some uh, a bigger business together and get some uh, better... Uh, record of of sustainable sort of profit um so you know when i joined there um it was on the basis that look we're going to look around and see what uh, are there other businesses we can put this together and that attracted me i I was you know some people would say well you may be out of a job in two years but the fact of going through that process uh i i I thought oh let's this this could be quite interesting so do you feel like Maybe you'd realised that you had sort of w- within the ex- sort of executive ladder that you were climbing, there was an entrepreneurship kind of um, seed within there to maybe work on businesses more um, fundamentally. Uh, yeah, and especially uh, in a corporate environment, you—I mean, other than being a shareholder, it's unlikely you're going to get a, a stake. Mm. Uh, and so, I, I suppose I realised that it, you know if you're building up value. Um, the only way to sort of participate in that is probably outside that sort of corporate uh, environment. Mm-hmm. And although uh, the whole proof MBO wasn't, uh, if you like, a, a strategy uh, when I was appointed, um, it was a little bit of a, a more of a uh, entrepreneurial um, opportunity to look and see, you know, what can you do with this business? Can you put it together with other 
uh, textile businesses. There was the John Webster's and the and Elaine Walker Rudkins that you know we did approach, but uh, at that time, um, you know, the economy was was probably not in in uh, a shape, and textile businesses weren't. Uh, so much in vogue, mm. uh, so that led to you know well rather than put something together, would Pacific Dunn not be interested in, in selling the business? So that's when I approached uh, Rainbow Argus Questar to to do, to do a stage one MBO. Okay, yeah, you were pretty quickly into the MBO there. So um, tell me a little bit about how that that came together in the end in the second stage, which you sort of describe as you know one of the riskier moments of your career. Right. Well, that, that first stage sort of followed, uh, if you like, no opportunities arising with Pacific Dunlop to, you know, put the, put the business together with, um, with another New Zealand business. And so uh, I think they were, it, it wasn't a big enough business in their uh, portfolio to, um, to, to hold. Uh, and so the opportunity I'm, uh, came to them to say, well, look, you know, sh- should we sell this business? And so I approached them, uh, approached uh, Rainbow first and then approached uh, Pacific Dunlop with a, a proposition that uh, we would buy the business from them. Okay. And, and um, how well did you do out of that, if I can well, ask you well, bluntly? Well, l- long term, I did well, but it didn't, as a lot of these things go, all according to plan. Mm. Uh, so it went pretty well for the first three years. We sort of rationalised the business and got some consistent earnings there. Um, but then um, Argus Questar, who had who held the uh, rainbow uh, 80% of Holdproof, uh, was a property company and got into strife sort of mm. post-share uh, crash uh, where in 1989 a lot of the property companies sort of fell over, so we're in a situation where uh, our 80% shareholder was a business that was um, uh, in in receivership, and so uh, that uh, led to discussions uh, with the uh, bank and the receiver uh, to see if there was an opportunity for a for a, a second stage uh, buyout, mm. uh, and at that stage. Um, uh, the company owed uh, around seven or eight million dollars uh, to the bank as part of borrowings from Argus Questa and other borrowings and overdrafts, etc. For Holdproof, so the deal was: um, if I could repay uh, this um, debt, if you like, uh, with some capitalised interest, which took it up closer to ten million um, over three years, uh, then they would sell me the eighty percent that I didn't own for a dollar. And that's that's how it arose. We needed, in the end, uh, another six months. But um, by then, you know, they were pretty comfortable that we were we were going to get there, and they had most of their money in the bank. So you know, but it was risky, um, given the economy uh, was in worse shape than when we uh, started the first sort of stage. Um, textile companies were definitely sort of out of favour, uh, and I had to sign a um, an all obligations sort of guarantee for the money. Uh, and my wife did as well. Wow. Uh, so it was all or nothing. I mean, if 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 it if it didn't work out, um, you know, I was going to be starting from scratch. So then you came to Dorchester. Uh, I, I see you've mentioned that you know you were there initially as a representative of Hugh Green uh, of Hugh Green Group. Uh, it was interesting. I was speaking to John John Green the other day. Um, talks of his father um, very uh, fondly. Um, so were you were you close with with Hugh? Well, I originally met Hugh when uh, I joined the. Hallaby board, mm. uh, and Hugh was a director of um, of Hallaby, which again was a diversified sort of business, about sort of seven or eight sort of businesses that sort of SME sort of theme 
continued, and um, Hugh uh, then invited me to also join his board, uh, Hugh Green Group, which is mainly property, property development, and also to represent his 20% interest that he had in Dorchester. So uh, I was on the Dorchester board uh, two years, I think, before um, the, the, the GFC uh, loomed. Mm. And it loomed, it did. Um, so how did you, again, um, sort of understand or rationalise how you might be able to take that business beyond, um, you know, where many other finance companies, companies in that position had, had failed at that time? Well, it it was clear heading to, um, you know, to the GFC that the business, uh, like a lot of finance companies, was really being stretched and something would need to be done for it to survive through with some of the property loans in particular uh, falling over. Uh, so uh, the I suppose the difference is that I stepped on into the executive role. Uh, the CEO left uh, and we needed to fill the gap. And I said, OK, I'll, I'll fill that uh, role for um, 15 hours a week or so for, for, for a month or for five weeks. Well, you know, the first week I probably spent sort of 40 hours there <laughs> and thereafter it was clear that it needed a, uh, a full-time role. Um, the advantage, I, I suppose, Dorchester had, um, notwithstanding the state of some of its loans, was because I came from the board, it was probably easier for me to convince my fellow shareholders that we needed to put the business into moratorium, mm. uh, even though you know some of the directors didn't didn't want to hear that. Um, and secondly, we we probably put our hands up. Uh, as needing the moratorium uh, well ahead of um, the stage that other finance companies got to. So uh, we still had, I think, about 25 million cash in the bank uh, when, we just, when we announced that we needed to put a moratorium uh, to enable us to repay the debenture holders over a period, whereas some of the other businesses, you know, pretty well wrote out their last cheque and then, then mm-hmm. threw in the towel. And the third thing was um, there was no uh, related party shenanigans. So there was no other director that had a major sharehold uh, that had a major shareholding in the business. So we were free from you know a lot of finance companies you know had issues of of related parties sort of uh, with with directors. And fortunately, uh, Dorchester didn't didn't have that particular issue. And do you still hold a stake in in Turners? Yeah, I still yeah. hold uh, I still hold a, a reasonable stake. Uh, at one stage, I think I got up to uh, four and a half, maybe five percent. I'm probably down to uh, two and a half, three now. Um, but it's been a great investment. I mean, the original um, the original uh, capitalisation price was uh, um, ten cents, or there was a ten for one, so it was a dollar a share, and you know the business is throwing off dividends of uh, 23, 24 cents, um, so it's a, it's a been a good return, and of mm. course the share price uh, has reflected the much uh, better business and uh, the more profitable business. Um, at the stage following the capitalisation, or just before the capitalisation, the total market capitalisation of Dorchester was uh, the grand sum of 1.5 million. Mm. So you know uh, to get from there to I think market cap now is about. 300 million is still a 
reasonably you know small uh, medium enterprise by um, uh, you know business standards. Um, but yeah, it's it's been uh, a, a rewarding investment and a, and a rewarding uh, time to uh, see it through and, and, and build, build the business. It's time for Economy Matters with Hilmari Schultz joining us today. So Hilmari, your article suggests the government's fixated by tax when it should be focused on other areas. Hi, John. Nice to see you. Yes, definitely. I think um, we have spent a lot of time and there has been a lot of reports on uh, the super rich paying enough tax or not enough tax, depending on who did the research. And I do think that we should spend some of that political energy and actually looking at how we're going to product, actually grow our productive sector, which will in turn lead to a much bigger tax base. What is involved in the productive sector? And you're saying that it's not just about housing. Um, yes, you know, we have um, in New Zealand had a love affair with housing for a very, very long time. And um, if you look at even in the last since deregulations in the late 1980s and 90s, the financial sector has grown significantly faster than what the rest of the economy has grown. And that has absolutely been fueled by the housing market, so by mortgages and insurance to cover your mortgages. So the productive sector is the other side, which is looking at things we produce, services we provide that we can actually export, because we are an export nation, but um, we have to provide this environment so that actually the productive sector can thrive and grow more than our housing sector. Why does it need to balance out and why now? Well, um, the housing sector is not a productive sector, is it? Um, it doesn't create employment. It doesn't create um, an export sector. Um, and for us as an export nation, it is so important that we keep on growing and that we expand that export market. And we can't do that if we don't have businesses that invest in New Zealand that will grow our export market. You mentioned that New Zealand's venture capital investments could grow. It's currently lagging behind the likes of Australia. Yes, I don't know. It's baffled me for a long time that we don't have this thriving venture capital market. We are a nation of SMEs. But what you see is that um, last year, I think we had about just over like $445 million of venture capital investment. Across the Dutch, they had like $5 billion of venture capital investment. And it's also that we don't have that market. We say we don't have it. But what we see is companies grow to a certain a certain size and then they can't access the capital in New Zealand. And then they get bought out by international companies. And then that money doesn't stay in New Zealand. It flows to those economies and provide wealth um, to economies outside of New Zealand. So, Hilmari, how will these venture capital firms help the productive sector? It will provide additional capital, capital into the market, which is currently not provided by our formal banking sector. Um, the bank sector is very risk-averse, um, so we do need um, greater capital for these frontier firms to be able to grow and stay in New Zealand. OK. In terms of where we're at now... You're expecting a pickup in investment from here? What's going to really drive it? 
What's really going to drive it if we have also a very concerted effort by the government to create this enabling environment to entice companies to come and invest in New Zealand, to show that we have a lot to offer in terms of growth and development and skills um, to be able to grow not only our own companies, but an entire base of our export market. Hand in hand with that, you've also pointed out to New Zealand's inadequate infrastructure, the infrastructure deficit. If we had better infrastructure, that will entice firms to New Zealand to invest? Absolutely. Um, uh, We have had an infrastructure deficit in this country for a long, long time um, by not having a very transformational government for the last 40 years. Um, So if we invest in our infrastructure and grow our infrastructure, it will make doing business in New Zealand so much easier. What can the government do in an election year? (laughs) All right. Um, Shift some of the energy about who, who the billionaires are taxing or not and looking at what we can enable in our productive sector to entice companies to come and invest here, but not only to invest, but actually providing resources so that they can grow. And that will have spin-off effects, you're saying, into the education health systems as well? Yes, absolutely, because once you are in a position where you have a growing and solid tax base, that tax take then goes into increasing or fixing our health system paying for our education, looking after our elderly and also making sure we look after our environment. Hilmari Schultz, thanks for your time. Thanks, Jono. US-based global real estate investment, development and property manager Heinz has officially opened its New Zealand office as part of the group's Asia-Pacific expansion. The company's head of APAC, Ray Lawler, is in Auckland for the launch and has joined me in our studio along with Heinz New Zealand director James Malloy. Well, thank you both for coming in. Ray, I think it would probably be best to start with you and just to give me a bit of a sense about what sort of shaped or what were the factors that played into Heinz's decision to set up an office here in New Zealand. Right, thank you for having us on. Uh, first off, I'd just like to say Heinz is a global company, so we mm. have the ability to see a lot. Mm. We're currently in 30 countries. We're in 200 and, I'm sorry, 395 cities. Uh, we currently have 96 billion of assets under management. So having that global perspective give, gives us the ability to see a lot of markets. And New Zealand was always one of uh, personal interest of mine. You know, here in the Asia-Pacific region, we are across seven countries, including New Zealand, our, our newest office. Uh, we have 11 offices, and we have uh, about $6 billion of assets under management. And so as we were looking at New Zealand, we were primarily looking at New Zealand, I think, for three key reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, one, it was a natural uh, addition to our strategic offering throughout the region. Mm-hmm. You know, two, it was a natural extension to what my colleague David Warnerford was doing in Australia already. And then finally, the growth in New Zealand, the underlying fundamentals and the ability to bring our global expertise mixed with our local uh, expertise, James, was quite a compelling opportunity. And we're just so excited to open up the office here. So your focus will be mainly on properties around built to rent, um, office, logistics and industrial. Why have you decided to zero in on those particular sectors? Well, those sectors are, are sectors that we are investing in globally. Mm. There are sectors that we know quite well. There are sectors that we're investing throughout the Asia-Pacific region. And we think the supply 
coupled with the growth, make those uh, particular asset classes attractive in New Zealand. So when turning to you, James, when you look at New Zealand, where are the particular areas that you would like you'd see sort of those developments sprouting up in? So from a New Zealand context, we're going to be focusing on areas like Auckland, Wellington and Christchurch. Mm. Um, specifically, at looking at those, you know, there's fundamentals within them all that make a lot of sense. Uh, Auckland and Wellington have some pretty unique geographical elements to them that uh, assist with natural land appreciation from a real estate perspective. Mm. And then um, looking at things like logistics, you know, Christchurch, for example, makes a lot of sense given it's the second largest city. It's a logistics hub in regards to agricultural industry and things like that and makes a lot of sense for us to invest in that space. So uh, for Auckland and Wellington, we'll be focused on all three asset classes, BTR, industrial logistics and office, and, and then Christchurch will be more focused initially just on that logistics space. So with Build to Rent, it's, it's, it's sort of a product that sort of um, gained a bit of notoriety in New Zealand in recent months. There's sort of a handful of developments looking at this area. What sort of goals or ambitions do you have for that sector here in New Zealand, which, you know, to some people is quite a new sort of product offering? Yeah, it's, it is a new product offering to New Zealand, and I think that's one of the unique things that Heinz brings to the table with its global expertise. You know, it's an asset class that it's been invested in for a very, very long time, mm. and Build to Rent has been an asset class that's been in, in play globally for a very, very long time and is one of the largest asset classes in the commercial real estate space. So in New Zealand, we see that uh, BTR is just another good extension of what we're already doing in countries like Australia. And we see that in cities like Auckland and Wellington, where there's pretty unique dynamics around housing affordability, mm. uh, cost of living, you know, BTR becomes a pretty unique offering. Mm. Um, and so for us, that's an area of focus. And, you know, we're patient. So it's not something that we're necessarily saying we're doing tomorrow. It will take some time, particularly with some u- new, unique nuances in regards to things that need to happen to mm. assist that as an asset class. But that's kind of our view on how we see it rolling out. With regards to office space, you know, there was a period here in New Zealand when you couldn't open up the newspaper without reading a story about the work from home phenomenon. But you still you still feel quite optimistic about the prospects in the sector. How do you sort of adapt to the changing nature of office work? Well, there there is no doubt that the office uh, that we knew is changing. Mm-hmm. You know, we we are in a once in a multi generational moment. Mm-hmm of how an employer and employee interact with one another. Uh, as the physical and digital worlds collide, as employees uh, demand flexibility and adaptability, which was already happening, by the way, it's just COVID was an accelerant of that. Uh, th- those trends are not uh, unique to New Zealand. They're a global phenomenon. But I think the global expertise that we bring, coupled with the boots on the ground, the really local knowledge, that's where I think we can make the best investment uh, decisions in the office space. Uh, and we, you know, just touring around today, you know, there are definitely opportunities where we think we can bring in the capital, we can strategically upgrade the property, and we can do something what we call brown to green. Mm-hmm. And what that means is you take an asset uh, that currently isn't as operating as uh, efficiently or sustainably as it should, and we can bring in our global expertise and, and actually make it a green building. Is your interest mainly around buying existing assets and you know, going through that model, or is it building from the ground up as well? Well, I think it, it depends on the asset class. Mm. Certainly, uh, in, in the office space, we, th- we think there are assets that we, we can buy versus build. We think we can bring in our development expertise and improve them, as I just said. And by definition, when you 
build a building, it has a, a higher carbon footprint than when you buy one. So that's just a, a very interesting thing to think about. And then on the BTR, the living space, you know, that is not an institutional asset class. So by definition, it's not something you can buy, you have to build, or you have to take a, an existing office building and convert it to living. Mm. Mm-hmm. So it just depends on the market and the asset class. Right. And look, there have been some challenges reported in New Zealand's building sector. There have been you know, significant cost inflation, you know, these sorts of challenges, which are not entirely unique to New Zealand. But as people work in the sector, how do you sort of manage those challenges when, when you, you know, there's the price that you sign the contract for and then when it comes to actually build, it's significantly increased? How do you sort of manage that? Yeah, uh, it's what we're our skill set set for, right? As being mm. a real estate uh, investor, developer, and manager, and that's what we do. And it comes with the territory of having to navigate these. And I guess one of the unique things with Heinz is globally, we're a business that wants to always transact through cycles and operate through cycles. So you have to become pretty adaptable at being able to deal with those kinds of issues. Um, and they're not unique to New Zealand; they're they're global uh, issues everywhere. I think probably one of the things that's a benefit for us at the moment um, is we don't have any current portfolio that we're dealing with at the moment in New Zealand that creates, you know, a potential headache for us. We're very much on the front foot looking mm-hmm. to buy and acquire assets. And so that gives us the opportunity to right time that based on the market and where things are at. And we feel that from that perspective, things will only get better. But, you know, crystal ball gazing, what are costs going to look like? Who knows? We will address that when we come to it and we just factor that into what we do. Those assets that you're looking to purchase, are they available for sale or do you think they will come to market when we think about sort of the office space? Um, They're definitely there for sale, uh, whether they're for sale or or not, or it's just off market is another question. Um, probably what we do that's unique with Heinz, and, and, and this again is globally, but also what we can do here in NZ is we've got a pretty good ability to tap into the market, get opportunities that not most people can get or investors can get, and, and that's why investors like to invest with Heinz, because we've got that adaptability to tap into that market and, and, and transact off market. So, you know, don't be surprised if, if assets come up uh, that Heinz have acquired that people weren't necessarily aware of. That's just part and parcel of how we operate. And we, one thing I've learned in this business doing it for a while is you, we, we absolutely cannot control interest rates. We can't control inflation. You can't? We can't. I wish I could. I'd, be in a, I'd probably be in a different business. But what we can control is our entry point, mm-hmm. yeah. when we buy, what we buy, how we build it, and, and, and the view that we take that's long term. And I think uh, our timing in New Zealand is quite good from, the, from those perspectives. You know, we've had unprecedented inflation and, and rising interest rates. And, uh, you know, obviously that's put pressure on values. Yeah. Uh, and as James said, because we don't have an existing portfolio, you know, we don't have leg- legacy assets uh, that we need to work through. It uh, makes us particularly poised to, to um, conduct offense, if you will, to, to buy the right asset at the right time. But with that said, we're not in a rush. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to have the right entry point. Yes, yeah, mm-hmm. so in a way, you're almost opportunists are waiting on the sidelines for, for something to come available in some senses, right? Right, it is. But what, one thing that we do in any market that we enter is, you know, when we when we make an investment uh, in, in an office and in a local uh, individual like James, is you know we get what I call getting the reps, and that just means you know he he knows the market, we don't, and James is bringing us along the way, and we're looking at deals every week. Mm-hmm. And we have a process uh, of looking at deals, understanding the market, why it would be now, 
what we should be buying, what would we do with the asset when we bought it. And uh, getting those reps, I think, is, is serves us and our investors well, and that's what we're doing right now. Wonderful. Thank you both for coming in, gentlemen. Thank Thanks you. Thanks so much. Cheers. And that's been this week's People in Business. Thanks for listening. If you're hungry for more and want to join the discussion, head over to nbr.co.nz.